Well, we have a special treat this morning. My goodness, um, I know you're going to enjoy our guest with us today and, and guest family. And um, let me tell you just a little bit about Dr. Yuan or Christopher. And um, I want to read, read a little bit about him so I get this correct. And then I'll share with you just my, my personal thoughts and turn it over to them. But he has now taught at, uh, at the, the Bible at Moody Bible Institute for over eight years. And now his speaking ministry on faith and sexuality has reached five continents. He speaks in conferences like the Gospel Coalition, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, InterVarsities, Urbana, Moody Pastors, conferences, men's conferences, on college campuses and in churches, uh, well-known churches like Saddleback and Willow Creek. He has co-authored uh, with his mom their memoir, a book that's now in seven languages and is available in the back today called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. And he's the author of another book called Giving a Voice to the Voiceless, uh, Christopher graduated from Moody Bible Institute in 2005, Wheaton College graduate in 2007 with his Master's of Arts in Biblical Exegesis and got his Doctorate of Ministry in 2014 from Bethel Seminary. I don't know what he does with all the other time he has on his hands. Um, his, his father, Leon, Dr. Leon, and his mom, Angela, have experienced heartache the, early on in life due to a prodigal son who embraced homosexuality, but God gave them the grace to rely upon his power to change the unchangeable and focus upon their daily renewal and transformation. Angela and Christopher share this journey in their book. You're not going to miss that. All right. So that's a little bit of uh, his, the standard bio. I'll tell you why I'm excited about this today. This, this opportunity came about through a friend of mine, but I had got a chance to meet Christopher and his mom, Angela, a couple years ago at a conference I was at, and even got a couple minutes at a lunch with them, and I was just impressed with his humility and his grace um, and his compassion. And what we're missing in lots of dialogue today on all sides of the spectrum of sexuality and politics and everything else is, is a humility and a graciousness to, to want to hear someone else's perspective, to want to learn, even if you disagree, to know and value the other person, even if you disagree with their arguments. And I appreciate that about him and his ministry. And, uh, but today, what you're going to really hear more than anything is, a, is an amazing testimony of what God can do in a family. And right before he comes up, this is just what I want to encourage you. I shared it with our worship team. I think about like testimonies nowadays, almost like a, like a Facebook profile or something. Like we don't, we don't write our nasty stuff on there. And yet here's God writing his genealogy in Matthew and Luke, just sharing all the brokenness and all the mistakes his family made that brought him to the place of Jesus. And I, I pray today that as they share their testimony and as other people in our church share their testimonies, we, we, we try to be honest with our struggles and where God has brought us. But the reason we do that is we want you to know that God has room in his family for you. No matter what you've done, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter where you've come from or what your life's been about, Jesus is proud to put those kind of people in his genealogy, just like we see in the Bible, <clears throat> because his genealogy is one of grace and not one of perfection and people doing it right and therefore they've been rewarded. Those that are rewarded are those who trust in the Lord and receive his grace and trust in his son, Jesus. And so I, I hope that you really hear that today and that God invites you into that in your life as well. Would you, would you come on up this morning? And uh, we, you, you're really going to enjoy this this morning. Give them a hand when they come up, would you? There you go. America, where... Money grows on trees, <laughs> and street aligned with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceive when I first 
passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. I quickly realized how wrong I was. The first night I stayed at my friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem. Even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people wear masks, ring doorbells, and said, trick or treat. <laughs> I said to myself, what have I got myself into? <laughs> Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later, and we married the next year. I also assumed, just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> we were not Christian then, after years of unresolved issue and self-centered living, our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for a divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on the same year, May 17th, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year in dental school. He made an announcement, I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her, making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do about it besides. Isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responded quite differently. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have cut me with a knife, and it would have hurt less. In my mind, Christopher who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope. As my world fell apart around me, I have no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with the minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only the pur my purse and the pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. 
never been much a reader. On the train, I began to read the pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called a number from the back of the pamphlet. It was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife, Angela. The lady was very, very excited, told me that your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. <laughs> I told her, this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has got on her side. But what I realized, her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know, God was also work on me. So I started going to church with her, and a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF. Bible Study Fellowship, where we grow deeper into the understanding of God and His Word. It was while I studied the Bible that I also surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue that kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to Himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead, as our son Christopher headed deeper and deeper, further and further walk away from God. For my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese-American kids. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. You see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music and of sensitivity, and Satan can't take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my attractions, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I started secretly going out to the gay clubs. Then when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry, 
I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet, and I began living openly as a gay man. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found temporarily, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied, so I began experimenting with drugs. Now, I need to be clear, not all gays and lesbians do drugs or promiscuous. Some do, some don't, but I want to tell you my entire story and completely be honest ab about that. But I also want to communicate to you that if you encounter the living Jesus Christ, he will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like most students, I was pretty poor. And if I was going to do drugs, I had to find a way to support my habit. And I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought that I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, and I thought they were gonna fight to keep me in school. My father's a dentist, and he knew the dean very well. Actually, all they really needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parents should do anyway? To my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And they said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. See, my mother knew that when it comes to her children, nothing is more important than their children knowing Jesus even more important than education, even more important than career. But you know, the sad reality is many people will go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401k. And in essence, we make our children do the same. Parents, are you putting more emphasis upon your children getting their homework done? putting more emphasis upon your children, getting better grades, getting to a better school, or are you putting the most emphasis upon your children following Jesus? It's no wonder why the majority of youth grow, grow up in youth uh, in church, go off to college and leave their faith behind because maybe they were never worshiping God in the first place. When it comes to our children, nothing is more important than our children following Jesus. But I got to be honest with you, I was not happy about my mother's decision. They were not on my side, they were on the school side. So I moved further away from them to the bright lights in big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs. But we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. 
So I send him Christian cards several times a week, and I fill them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I sign, love you forever, mom. But little did I know, he never read them and simply tossed them into the trash. My wife and I knew the only way we can see our son is we flew from Chicago to Atlanta. So we did. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused. Yet I leave my very first Bible on his counter anyway and walk out the door. We found out later he took my Bible and threw into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on the hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our church, from the Bible study fellowship group, we cry out to God for our son Christopher. And my wife began to pray a very bold, but very dangerous prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years, once fasted 39 days for our son Christopher. Every morning, she would literally spend hours in her prayer closet, on her knees, reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher and praying for herself and for me. She wrote out some of her prayer and following is one of those prayers. I was staying in the gap for Christopher. I was staying until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I was staying in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may. I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede. Though it may take years, I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I pray those prayers for eight years. And it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. What God's answer to me was, wait, be still, and be that I know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring changes. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed.
that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. Oswald Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live all those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often answer to prayer doesn't come quickly, and this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with a street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest and academia. And I found myself in the ditch among societies despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know, those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that get me more into trouble than anything else. Well, what I didn't know was that I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So you mothers, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. <laughs> so I was down to the bottom of the list, home. And I did not want to make that phone call as I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, son, are you okay? No condemnation, no braiding words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice that Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call if you can believe it or not because I hadn't called home in years and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone fighting back the tears she knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. 
count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down and she reached out next to the phone was a calculator and she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is in a safe place compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And today, this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is, both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block, and I was walking past this garbage can. And in jail, they don't take the trash out every day, so it was a mound of trash. And I looked at this trash, and I just thought, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class, suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among, among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell, and I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. And let me tell you, I wasn't thinking, this is the Word of God. I wasn't even thinking, this is the answer to some of your problems. Actually, I simply thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. But as some of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. They handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist. I shuffled into the nurse's office. She sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. 
I feel dizzy. As the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison, but news of his HIV status was like a death sentence, a verdict I could not accept. Hang up the phone, the pains of grief torn in my broken heart like a knife. Hang on the phone, the pain it was so deep, and endlessly I stumbled up the steps and dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees as stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet stream of him filled my ears. It is well. It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Please sing with us. It is well, it is well with my soul. With my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well. Well, with my soul. A few days after receiving that devastating news, I was in my prison cell all by myself, just contemplating the mess that I've made of my life. I lie in my bed. And I look up at the metal bunk above me. There was graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But someone had written something else in the corner, and it read, "If you're bored, read Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans that I have for you," declares the Lord. 
plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point of my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in my past, he still, he still had a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual and I wish I could tell you that at that moment I got down on my knees, I just said a sinner's prayer, and then everything after that was perfect, like I'd had no more problems. Far from the truth. God was convicting me of my dependencies. The most obvious was drugs, but within a few months, God delivered me from the bondage of that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols, other dependencies, which were many, and he kept helping me be free from those. But there was one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, and it was my sexual identity. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. But I also came across some passages that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me that the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. And he went to his bookshelf, got a book, and he said, here, this book explains that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you, from a purely human perspective, I had every, every single reason in the world to accept what that book was claiming, to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. I wanted to find any type of a positive affirmation for a monogamous same-sex relationship. I went cover to cover. Several times I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and His Word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship by freeing myself from my sexual identity, by not allowing my attractions to control who I was and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus.
as the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized a few important lessons. First of all, I realized that abstaining from sex is actually possible. I know, the world says it's not, but it actually is. Who knew? Second, I realized that abstaining from sex is not going to make me go crazy or psychotic, no matter what Freud and Oprah say. Third, I realized that after abstaining from sex, even for a short while, that my sexuality does not have to be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, and that's true. But don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. And I know you hear this a lot from your friends, similar to what I thought, that would say things like, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading the Bible, I realized that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say that again. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity shouldn't be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my attractions. My identity is not gay, is not ex-gay, is not even heterosexual for that matter, because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. You know, I had thought that if I were to become a good Christian, a strong Christian, that I would have to become heterosexual, that somehow the more attracted I was to women, the more Christian I would be. But I realized that even if I had heterosexual feelings, I would still need to flee temptation and put to death my sin nature every day. So heterosexuality is not the goal. Besides, God never said, be heterosexual for I am heterosexual. But neither did he say, be homosexual for I am homosexual. Rather, God said, be holy for I am holy. So therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the goal, but the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of any sin struggle is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I may still be tempted by not. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity because change is not the absence of temptations. But change is the ability, the freedom to be holy even in the midst of temptations because the ultimate issue is not what I'm struggling with, not my temptations or my desires, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life, and He called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether in prison or out of prison, because my calling on life would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and He shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called them, collected my parents, told my parents, I think God's calling me to ministry. And I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of at that time called Moody Bible Institute. 
But then there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into me. I began filling it out until I got to the last page where they asked me for references. Yeah, not from anybody, but specifically people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. But I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. I was released from prison in July of 2001. I started the very next month in August. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody in 2005, went out to my master's in exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, received my doctorate in ministry in 2014 from Bethel Seminary, and I also had the immense honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote it together, so she wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two, she wrote chapter, she wrote all the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters, because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, and then God, get this, God in his power and his grace brought us all back together. In the back of every book, is a free eight-week discussion guide that many, uh, many small groups are using to continue this conversation on sexuality. Uh, actually, many Christian high schools are also using our book as a textbook. And so many parents are, are getting this book and buying a few for their family and reading this with their kids. And it makes sense because I hope you realize this. Our kids from kindergarten, let me say that again, from kindergarten are being flooded, inundated with resources on sexuality, and the teachers don't have to tell you, all about on, on sexuality, all from a non-Christian worldview. And yet oftentimes, parents, we do little, and grandparents, we do little or nothing to help our children have a biblical view of sexuality. Do you know the job of teaching sex education is not the public school's job. Let me say that again. The job of teaching sex education is not mainly the public school's job. And I know that might be difficult saying that here in a public school. The job of teaching sex education is not the media's job. Can I get an amen for that one? The job to teach sex education is not even the youth pastor's job. Where's the youth pastor? He, well, he's not here, right? He's riding his bike, so we're talking about him, but I'm sure he's saying amen from his bike. It's not even the pastor's job, amen? You know whose job it is? The parent's job. Thank you. And unfortunately, we have given that responsibility away long ago. It's time for us to take it back. Pastors, ministers, even the schools, we're here to help you, equip you, but hopefully equip you in the right ways with the right resources, but never take that job away from you. You know the, the question or the concern that many parents have? They ask me, when is it too young to talk to your, you know, your children, your little boy or little girl about sexuality? You know how I respond? It's no longer that question. The question now is, when is it too late? Should it not be parents who first talk to their kids about sex? Not from the playground, not from the peers, not from pornography, not from Hollywood, not from public school, but at home. 
So let's seize this opportunity. This one time, this, this elderly lady, who I think really grasped this idea, and she went back to our book table, and she asked for 10 books. I'm like, 10 books? You just need one. She's like, no, young man, I need 10. She said, one for myself and nine for my grandchildren. She said, I'm going to mail every one of my grandchildren one book, and I'm going to read this book with them and go through the questions with them. We cannot be naive into thinking our children are somehow going to catch biblical sexuality. We must seize this opportunity, not expose them, but equip them to better engage not only with the struggles that we all have with sexuality, but also to better engage the world. Amazingly, God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. And my parents and I, we travel on the, around the nation, around the world. Actually, we just got back three days ago from a three-week uh, trip to Asia in six different countries speaking. And God has given us back the years that the locusts, locusts have taken away. We travel around the nation, around the world as a two-generational ministry. How cool is that? Two-generational, talking about God's grace and God's truth on this issue of sexuality. And then as if that wasn't big enough, God has a sense of humor because he's brought me back to Moody where I've been teaching in the Bible department for over eight years. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? But God has done, God has done far, far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. As I close and the worship team can come out now, you know, I look back upon my life and I see that I've made some really bad decisions, which have resulted in some big consequences. One of those being HIV positive. But you know, I realized something, that actually, I'm no different than any of you. All of our days are numbered. Not one person in this room, young or old, has ever been promised tomorrow here on this good earth. But do you know it took getting HIV for me to realize a very important truth? That as a child of God, I must live with a sense of urgency. This world we live in today, I mean, it's a crazy world threat of nuclear war, terrorism, orphans, widows, the outcast, the migrant, disease, war, tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis. When I look at the world we live in today, I'm fully convinced it doesn't need another good Christian. A good Christian who might come to church every Sunday, good people but doing little for the kingdom of God. This world doesn't need another good Christian. But what this world needs, what this world demands, are great Christians. Christians who don't settle for mediocrity.
Christians who don't really care what the person on the left says or the person on the right says, but they're living for an audience of one. Christians who know that they've been crucified with Christ and they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. Christians who are truly living with a sense of urgency. Do you know God created you for greatness? Not in the eyes of man saying, look how great I am. Lording over people, that's great in the eyes of man. No, we've been created for greatness in God's eyes, which means being the least of these, which means not coming to be served, but coming to serve. Because I promise you, more than the breath that you just took, I promise you that there will be one glorious day that will come in the blink of an eye where every one of us, whether you're ready or not, we will stand before our God, our Father, and my hope and my prayer is that He can look at you in the eyes and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, enthroned above the cherubim, you reign. You are seated on your throne in majesty and glory. Everything that has breath will one day give you honor. In the meantime, Lord God, you have called us to abide here on this earth, to be salt and light. And yet, God, we have settled for mediocrity. Forgive us, God. Help us, God, to live with a sense of urgency. Help us, Lord, to love the outcast, to love truth, to extend grace so that people will be able to see Jesus in us and to understand the gospel that you have proclaimed from the beginning of time through the prophets, through the apostles, and now through us. Help us, God, to live with that sense of urgency and be great in your eyes. God, we love you. We praise you. And we ask this in the mighty, matchless name of Jesus, the Messiah, and the people of God said, Amen. Amen. Wasn't that good this morning?